Welcome to the Maine Historical Society podcast. These podcasts explore the experiences of Maine people in a changing world and the connections between local, state, and national history. To learn more about our programs, please visit us online at www.mainhistory.org slash programs. Um, I'm very uh, excited about today's program. Um, Richard Rubin has been getting a lot of wonderful uh, feedback both on his book and on his talks around the state. He's been in a number of libraries around the state and we're really thrilled to be able to bring him here. Um, and I have read the prologue to this book. I have not yet read the whole thing, but I can guarantee you I will because from literally the first paragraph, it was absolutely enthralling. So if you pick it up in our museum shop today after the talk and you read a few sentences, you will probably want to purchase it. So I encourage you to do that and Richard will stick around after the talk um, to sign books as well. Uh, Richard Rubin is obviously a writer and he has been a teacher as well. He's um, written in, a, in addition to The Last of the Doughboys, he's the author of Confederacy of Silence, A True Tale of the Old New South and Everyday American History of the 20th Century. And he's published numerous articles in national publications, including The New Yorker, Smithsonian, Atlantic Monthly, and The New York Times Magazine. And he's also a published short story writer. Um, Richard was a visiting writing professor at St. Lawrence University from 2008 to 2010. And he has a great website, richardrubinonline.com. Um, you can learn a lot more about the book and his other work on there. Um, so please join me in welcoming Richard today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Larissa. I appreciate that. And thank you for inviting me. It's a real honor to be here. Um, <clears throat> I am a history buff, as you may have guessed. Uh, I spent 10 years on this book. Um, people often ask me, in fact, a woman asked me just a couple of minutes ago, um, how did you become interested in World War I? And I come by uh, both my interest in World War I and my general interest in history. Honestly, I am the son of a history buff. Uh, but in my family, the history buff is actually my mother, not my father. And of her four children, she's the, I'm the only one that she passed that trade on to. Uh, but she passed it on to me early uh, and very well. In fact, one of my earliest really vivid memories, I was just thinking about this the other day, is during the oil embargo of 1973, uh, when I was six years old, um, I was in Westchester County, New York, just north of the city where I grew up, and I remember sitting in the car with my mother online for gas for two and a half hours, um, and I was, the whole time I was reading to her from a children's biography of George Washington. And my mother, who had a master's degree in history from Columbia University, um, uh, did a very good job of pretending that this was all news to her. I really appreciated <laughs> that. Uh, <clears throat> a couple years later, so 1974-75, I was seven or eight years old. We were driving into the city one day. And uh, we were on the Major Deegan Expressway, and my mother pointed at one point at the, a big, big building up on a hill. And she said that that was the Bronx VA Hospital. And then she told me something I've never forgotten. She said that there were still men in that hospital to that day who had never recovered from being gassed in World War I. 
And that really made a very strong impression on me. Uh, as I said, I was only seven or eight years old at the time, and I didn't know very much about World War I at that point. Mostly uh, um, what I knew about it, I learned from Snoopy. Um, but I, I knew that it had happened a very long time before that, um, almost 60 years at that point, and it mystified me that something like that could have such lingering effects on people for the rest of their lives and such terrible effects. And I never forgot that. Um, and it nestled in my mind. I developed a strong interest in the war, um, but I pursued other things uh, to write about. And one day in early 2003, so about six months or so after uh, the publication of my last book, Confederacy of Silence, I was um, at home. I was supposed to be working on a new book about genealogy. Um, but for some reason that day I was procrastinating, probably because I procrastinated every day. And uh, I was listening to WNYC, the local public radio station, and uh, there was a guest on a show uh, talking about World War II. And he said that at that point, a thousand World War II veterans were dying off every day. And his voice took on a very urgent tone. He said, we must get their stories now while we still can. And that hit me very hard. But for some reason that day, I had a contrary thought. I thought, you know, I've met a lot of World War II veterans. Uh, there were a few living in the apartment building, the small apartment building that I lived in in Manhattan <coughs> at the time. And I'd heard a lot of World War II stories. But I hadn't heard any World War I stories in a very long time. And I thought, I wonder if I can still go out and hear some. Um, I did the math in my head. As I said, it was early 2003. Uh, the war ended in 1918, 85 years earlier. And I thought, somebody who was 20 years old in 1918 would be 105 today, um, uh, which, which didn't bode well, I thought, for getting <laughs> World War I stories. But I am one of those odd people who reads the obituaries first thing every morning in the newspaper, uh, looking for interesting people and stories. So I did know that people did occasionally live to be 105 years old, maybe even older. Uh, so I thought, OK, I'll find two or three. Uh, interview them, get their stories, write up a magazine article for Memorial Day or maybe Veterans Day, and then get back to this book on genealogy. And that's exactly what would have happened, except that I couldn't find any living American veterans of World War I. Uh, my first stop was the Department of Veterans Affairs in Washington, D.C. I assumed in my naivete that they would have a spreadsheet printed up of <laughs> living American veterans of World War I with their addresses and phone numbers, um, and that, of course, they would be happy to share this with me. Um, this did not turn out to be the case. Um, I was told that they had no such database, and that even if they had, they couldn't share it with me because of privacy concerns. Um, and for years, I thought that they, they were just putting me off. And then about three or four years later, I started getting calls from people at the VA asking me how many living American veterans of World War I there were and where they were. So I believe now that, uh, in fact, they didn't have such a database, which, to be honest with you, mystifies me, even today, 10 years later. Um, but it was the case. Uh, there was nothing I could do about it, so I decided to go out on my own and see what I could do. I started calling VA hospitals, nursing homes, American Legion posts, uh, VFW posts, asking everybody, um, do you know of any living <laughs> American veterans of World War I? And the answer was always the same. No, we haven't seen any in 10 or 15 years. Let us know if you find any. Um, and uh, this went on for about two or three months, and I started to get very discouraged. Um, 
And uh, um, I was pretty close to giving up on it when I got my first big break uh, in the search. And it came from a most unexpected source, uh, the government of France. Um, in 1998, so five years earlier, uh, the government of France had set up a program wherein they would award the Legion of Honor, France's highest award, to any living American veteran uh, who had served on French soil during World War I. And while a lot of people uh, might have thought that this was just a PR gambit, they really meant it, and they really wanted to give this thing out. And so uh, they undertook an intensive search for living American veterans of World War I. They ran ads in newspapers and magazines around the country. Uh, they enlisted the help of the VFW and the American Legion. And in 1998 and 1999, they ended up giving out about 550 legions of honor. And they didn't just put it in the mail. Um, if you passed muster, and there were certain qualifications, the one I remember best was that you couldn't have a criminal record. Um, so if you, if you uh, survived the vetting process, uh, they wouldn't, as I said, just put this medal in the mail to you and a very large, impressive certificate that went along with it. They actually dispatched an official from the embassy in Washington, D.C. to your home or your hometown and staged a ceremony where they presented you with this medal and the grateful thanks of a French nation. Um, it was, it was a really uh, impressive and wonderful program. Um, I should point out that another qualification for it was that you had to be living. And... Um, I've read several articles about uh, men who didn't, uh, didn't make it in between when the French embassy identified them and when the ceremony was staged. They died somewhere in the several weeks in between those two things. And one story about a gentleman who died the day after he was awarded the Legion of Honor. Um, so this was exciting to me uh, because I thought, well, possibly some sympathetic figure at the French Embassy might take my information and maybe pass it on to a living American veteran of World War I. So I called up the Embassy and I told them who I was and what I was doing. And they passed me on to an adjutant, a fellow named Nam Do Kao, half French, half Vietnamese. And I told the story again, I explained to him what I was doing. And he was so moved by this that even though he was scheduled to be rotated back to Paris in just a few weeks, um, in his, uh, his own time after work, he photocopied all 550 or so successful applications for the Legion of Honor and FedExed them to me. And he would not take a dime from me. And this book really wouldn't exist without that act of kindness. And uh, let me just point out that this happened uh, at a moment in history when relations between France and the United States were not particularly good. You may recall that around the same time, the spring of 2003, uh, Congress voted uh, to change the name of French fries to freedom fries <laughs> in their commissary. And yet it was France, the government of France, not our own government, that gave me my first big break in my search for American veterans of World War I. And I ended up eventually finding a couple of dozen people off what I came to think of as the French list. This book certainly wouldn't exist without it. Um, so I had this list now, and I started calling people on it. Now remember, the list was already five years old by the time I got it. And the men and women on the list were already very old by the time they were awarded the Legion of Honor. So upwards of something like 95% of the people on that list had since passed away. 
What that meant was that I had an awful lot of very awkward phone conversations with people. Uh, if you've ever called the residence of somebody who is almost certainly dead, um, you know what I mean. Uh, and um, I started out really not knowing how to go about it. So I started, I was living in Manhattan at the time. I started with names in the metropolitan New York area. And people would tell me right away, uh, you know, when I asked, uh, is this so-and-so's residence? Well, it was, but he's passed away. And one day I called up a number in Queens, and a woman answered the phone, and I said, is this so-and-so's residence? And she said, it is. And I got very, very excited. And I said, well, uh, may I speak with him? And she said, what is this regarding? And I said, well, I'm trying to track down uh, any living American veteran of World War I I can find and interview them for a magazine article. And she said, well, you're barking up the wrong tree. He's dead. And she slammed down the phone. And I was very shaken up by this. And I did the thing that your parents always tell you to do when you're a child if you fall off the horse. I got right back on again. And I, made, I called the next number on the list. And this was not a very good idea, it turned out, because I hadn't really taken the time to compose myself and rethink what I was going to say. So I called up the next name on the list. It was a house out on Long Island, and a woman answered the phone, and I said, is this so-and-so's residence? And she said, yes. And I said, uh, is he uh, still around? <laughs> and she was very kind. She said, no, he passed away about three years ago, and for future reference, you might just want to ask, is he still living? <laughs> Which turned out to be very good advice. Um, so I made about 40 or 50 phone calls um, that ended this way, until one day I picked up the phone and I called a number uh, belonging to a gentleman named J. Lawrence Moffat. This was in Orleans, Massachusetts, at the elbow of Cape Cod. And a woman picked up the phone, turned out to be his daughter, Janet. And I said, is this uh, Mr. Moffat's residence? And she said, it is. And I said, is he still living? And she said, he is. And I guess I was struck dumb, because there was a moment of silence that was broken by her. And she said, would you like to speak to him? <laughs> And I was really quite shocked. I spoke to him for just a couple of minutes uh, and uh, talked to him. Uh, we, I told him who I was and what I wanted to do. He said he'd be delighted to talk to me. Uh, we made a time for me to come up a couple of weeks hence, and I drove up to Cape Cod uh, to interview him. Now, I was quite nervous about this prospect uh, in between the time when I found him and when I actually had to go interview him, because before I found a living veteran, their existence was merely theoretical. So the search was everything. But now I was like the dog who chases the car and finally gets it. Um, I had to figure out how to interview a 106-year-old man. And I, I started to become, as I said, very anxious. I started to worry if I had bitten off more than I could chew. Could I really interview a 106-year-old man about things that he had seen and done 85 years earlier and have a real conversation with him? Uh, and this, uh, as the, the day drew closer, I became more and more nervous about this until finally, July 20th, 2003, I drove up to Orleans and I got to his house. It was a little house set back in the woods. 
and um, a small place, just he and Janet living there. And uh, one of the first things I noticed was that there was only one chair, a very comfortable armchair, but only one chair. And he offered it to me. Uh, I turned around. I wasn't going to take a chair away from a 106-year-old man who owned the house. Uh, and so I turned around and offered it back to him. And so when I interviewed him, I sat in the only other seat in the house, which was his wheelchair. Um, so I did what I, what I always did, uh, what became my routine for the rest of the, the time I did these interviews, which was another three years or so. Um, I uh, f figured out where I was going to sit, where he was going to sit. I set up my video camera. I recorded all of these interviews on uh, mini-DV, uh, digital video. Um, and early on, uh, this, is, this is just to show you what a shoestring budget I was on. I did not own the digital video camera. I borrowed it from the younger brother of the woman who was then my girlfriend. He had just dropped out of film school. Uh, so if he had been a better student, perhaps this book also might not exist, because uh, I certainly couldn't afford a, a camcorder at that time. Um, and I had never worked with a video camera before, and so I was quite nervous about it. And I brought along a cassette tape recorder to use as a backup, uh, just in case. And I did that for the first few interviews until I figured out that video was quite reliable. So I set everything up, and we start talking. Uh, and I asked him the question that I asked everybody when I interviewed them, the first question, what is your name? Uh, followed by, when were you born? Where were you born? What were your parents' names? Did you have siblings? What were their names? What did your father do for a living? Did your mother work? And on and on and on. And to my surprise, th things seemed to be going pretty well. Uh, but I was still quite nervous. And about 15 minutes into this interview, I asked him, where did you go to high school? And I want to read for you his response in full and unedited. I went to high school from Lebanon. That's Lebanon, Connecticut, a small town in the eastern part of the state where he grew up. I went to high school from Lebanon. That high school was in Willimantic, which was about two miles from home. And then I was directed to an insurance company in Hartford for a position and accepted. And I spent my life in insurance. I was hired by two companies, one then another. And I went to World War I. I graduated from high school in 1914. I went in the Army in 1917, in April of 1917, just before war was declared. And I was in the Army for two years, 18 months in France in the first division to go to France. The division was the 26th division, made up of the National Guard of the six New England states. There are four infantry regiments in a division and artillery batteries with which I am not acquainted. And the 101st Infantry Regiment was made up of the Massachusetts National Guard. The 102nd was made up of Connecticut National Guard. That's where I was in the 102nd Infantry. The 103rd Infantry Regiment was from Maine, and the 104th from New Hampshire and Vermont, and artillery mostly from Rhode Island. Let me remind you at this point, this man is 106 years old. <clears throat> and we were, in Connecticut, we were assembled at New Haven. All the different National Guard companies of Connecticut were assembled in New Haven in 1917, July. And from there we went. It was so early in the war there were no transports. We went, my company and I don't know how many others, went by train, the CV Central Vermont, to Montreal, and then embarked there and sailed down the St. Lawrence to Halifax, where we joined several other National Guard companies that were ready to go across and went across to Liverpool. A nine-day trip it was and then across the channel to France, and then across France to a certain area, Landeville, and the regiment trained for four months there. And in February, we were sent to the front. At that time, the Allies, Britain and France and Belgium and others, they were, had been in the war since 1914. 
and we joined them in 1917 and went to the front in February of 1918. So the first sector was the Allies at that time were defending themselves against the attacks of Germany, and we were just in defensive action. I was in the headquarters company of the infantry regiment and on the staff of the colonel along with others. I had the rank of a corporal. And I escaped the front line, trench warfare, but I was subject to constant artillery fire. I spent my 21st birthday in the front line, March 6th of 1918. And I went out on patrol with a patrol group that night. And we spent two months in that sector, which was the Chemin de Dam. Well, that was our first sector. Two months later, we were moved to another sector, the Toul sector. And then came Chateau Thierry in the summer of 1918, and then the closing war at Saint-Miel and Verdun. And the war was over, as you know, on November 11th of 1918. And President Wilson paid our company a visit while we were there and talked to us. And that might have, I don't remember, don't recall now just when that was or what the occasion was, but it was maybe a holiday. That was his answer to the question, where did you go to high school? <laughs> so I never really worried after that whether or not I had bitten off more than I could chew. Uh, and in fact, believe it or not, uh, Mr. Moffat did not have the very best memory among the people I interviewed. After all, he couldn't remember the occasion that President Wilson had visited them. I found out later it was Christmas. Um, but he had a very interesting story to tell, and it was very fortunate that I found him as early as I did. For one thing, he uh, died in February of 2004, so I didn't really have a lot of time to spare, and I did interview him twice. The second time was on November 11th, 2003, the 85th anniversary of the armistice. He he rode in every parade uh, that they threw in that little town of Orleans, Massachusetts, um, in his daughter's Mitsubishi sedan with a magnetic sign on the door that said World War I veteran, uh, wearing his original helmet from World War I. And I asked him why he made a point of riding in every parade in the town, and he said, well, I assume people like to see a World War I exhibit. <laughs> uh, um, but it really was very, very fortunate for me that I found him and interviewed him as early as I did. Uh, for one thing, as I say in the book, um, a lot of the interviews were much more difficult than that one, and I probably would have gotten discouraged early on uh, without having spoken to him. But the other reason that it was so fortunate that I got to him first was because he was in a really remarkable outfit in World War I. He talked about it a little bit. Uh, it was the 26th Infantry Division, uh, which was composed entirely of National Guard units from the six New England states. Uh, he had joined the Connecticut National Guard a couple of weeks before America entered the war. Uh, people could see what was coming. The Connecticut National Guard issued a call for men, and he responded to it. He left his job and insurance in Hartford uh, and uh, went and enlisted in New Haven. And the, hundred, uh, the Connecticut National Guard was nationalized after America entered the war and became the 102nd Infantry Regiment, uh, one of the regiments, one of four regiments in this division, the 26th. And the 26th Division uh, had a tremendous pride to it, in part because of their New England roots and in part because of the role they played in the war, which was really distinct. Uh, they even had a very distinct nickname. Uh, every division was given a nickname, uh, but this one was called the Yankee Division. And that nickname quite uh, 
is quite likely to go back to a gentleman named Frank P. Sibley. He certainly took credit for it. He was a reporter for the Boston Globe, and when America entered the war, he became essentially America's first embedded journalist. He, uh, the, the Globe decided to send him uh, with the 26th Division wherever they would go. And it was so early in the war, and the War Department had never heard of anything like this before, that they denied him accreditation uh, to do this. So he just went anyway. Um, and he writes in a memoir he wrote about it uh, called With the Yankee Division in France, which was published in 1919. He writes, my mission was to keep the families at home informed of the experiences of their boys in France. The Boston Globe was thoroughly protected by news services, by special correspondence, and by every obtainable agent as to the progress of the war as a whole. I was to write only what was happening to the New England boys. And he took that very, very seriously. He was, um, journalists are supposed to be objective, but Frank P. Sibley made no pretense of objectivity. He knew the Yankee division was the best, and he took every opportunity to tell his readers back home at the Boston Globe uh, as much, and his readers, of course, agreed with him. Um, <clears throat> the Yankee division had a lot of things that set them apart, uh, but perhaps the most important was their commanding officer, Major General Clarence Ransom Edwards, who was 58 years old uh, in 1917 when he was given this assignment. He was from Ohio originally. He was a graduate of West Point, class of 1883. He actually graduated last in his class in 1883. I don't know if that has any bearing on uh, what came next, but um, <clears throat> he, was, uh, he was certainly larger than life. Um, had a real big personality, and quite frankly, it was a personality that a lot of people didn't like. Um, a gentleman named, uh, a major general named William Lassiter wrote in his memoirs uh, a couple of decades after the war um, about uh, General Edwards. He wrote, he was the most egocentric person I have ever known. He thought so much and talked so much about himself that his job always became a secondary consideration. He spent his time criticizing all and sundry in the hierarchy above him and making his men feel they were not being given a fair share. Um, that's, I would call that a mixed review at best. Um, and the army, at least in those days, uh, the closer you got to the top, the bigger the egos became. And there were a lot of petty feuds with real ramifications. Um, there were people who liked General Edwards and people who didn't like General Edwards. And unfortunately, one of the people who didn't like General Edwards was General John J. Pershing, the commander-in-chief of the American Expeditionary Forces, probably the kind of guy you'd want to have on your side uh, while prosecuting a war. Um, that didn't stop General Edwards. He wanted great things for the Yankee division, and they wanted it for themselves. Now, as uh, Mr. Moffat told me on that first day, there were four regiments in the Yankee division. The 101st were from Massachusetts. The 102nd were from Connecticut. That's where he was. The 103rd were from Maine. That means that every man in the 103rd Infantry Regiment was in Maine National Guard before the war, and the 104th from New Hampshire and Vermont. 
Um, and they had tremendous pride in their division and tremendous pride in their commanding officer. Um, and he, in turn, had tremendous pride in them and great ambitions for them. And one of the things he wanted was for his division, which after all was mobilized very early, right after America entered the war, to be one of the first, if not the first division to go over to France. Um, unfortunately, uh, he was told that there were three divisions with seniority over his, the first, second, and third divisions, which were regular army divisions, which means that they already existed before the war. They were made up of career soldiers. Um, and he was told that they had seniority over him and that they were going to be going over first. Uh, he didn't care for that notion, and so he decided on his own to ship his division over to France without orders. Um, let me just clarify that for a second and tell you that a division has 25,000 men in it, plus all of the material they go across with, including horses and automobiles and guns and all that stuff. Imagine what it would take to ship 25,000 men and all that material across an ocean without orders. Uh, people ask me all the time, how did he do it? And I answer them quite honestly, I have no idea. Uh, I don't think, honestly, that anything like it has ever been done before or since. Um, and so when Lawrence Moffat said that they were the first division to go to France, he was sort of telling the truth, but not entirely. There were elements of the first and second divisions in France before the 26th. But the 26th was the first full division to arrive in France. They shipped out on September 19, 1917, and arrived in France on October the 9th, 1917. And they were hailed by the French immediately, because the French had been desperately waiting for Americans to show up uh, and make a stand there. And the soldiers of the Yankee division, including a great many from Maine, were among the very uh, first American soldiers that the French ever saw. And they fell in love with each other very quickly. Uh, in France, uh, the Yankee division had a very distinguished record. The first place that they were sent was a place called Chemin de Dame, uh, which had been the site of terrible, terrible fighting uh, earlier in the war. Uh, it was fairly quiet, although not entirely quiet, by the time the Yankee division got there in February of 1918. Um, and if you go to France today, uh, Chemin de Dame is, is on a ridge. And both sides, the Allies and the Germans, took shelter in a series of mines that had been carved out there before the war. And they're officially closed to the public today. But if you find the right person and you slip him the right amount of money, um, he will take you into these caves today. And uh, it's wonderful. The Yankee division had a lot of time on their hands in these caves. And they left a lot of graffiti on the walls. And because it's underground, it's been preserved immaculately and is very legible. And there might very well be something on one of those walls written by an ancestor of yours. Uh, so I think it's, it's definitely worth looking at. It may come to pass that with the centennial of the war coming up, they may open it up to the public and so it would be easier to get to. But it's definitely worth a visit. Uh, so they spent a couple of months there at Chemin de Dame, and then they were transferred to uh, the tool sector, which on American maps was called the American sector. And it was there on April 20th, 1918, that American troops had their first major encounter with German troops in a battle called Seichepray. Um, Later on that summer, they were sent to a place called Chateau Terry, 
uh, which, uh, where they saw some terrible, terrible fighting. Uh, they liberated the village of Bello, uh, which is right next to Bello Wood, where there was a, um, an awful battle fought the month before. And in the process of liberating this village, uh, they destroyed it. Um, which was a very common thing in that war. Artillery uh, played a huge role, uh, bigger than anything else really in that war, and an awful lot of French villages were destroyed in the process of being liberated. Uh, and after the war, the Yankee division raised a fund and they rebuilt the, the church at Bellow. And it stands there today as a memorial to the Yankee division. It's really beautiful. I recommend uh, going to see that if you make it over there. Uh, they fought at the Second Battle of the Marne that summer. Uh, later on, they were at the Battle of San Miguel, in September of 1918, where they were given the toughest uh, assignment, and they finished up the war at the Battle of Meuse-Argonne, uh, which lasted seven weeks. It was the last seven weeks of the war, and 26,277 Americans were killed in that battle over those seven weeks. It remains to this day the deadliest battle in American history. And in the midst of that battle, uh, General Edwards was recalled. He was essentially fired and sent back to the United States on October 22nd, 1918. Um, the official charge was that he had allowed his men to fraternize with the enemy. Accounts that I've read from Frank P. Sibley and uh, in other books um, indicate that this was the kind of thing that happened all the time. The Germans had asked for a parlay. The Americans had gone out to meet them and hear their terms. Uh, the Americans had not agreed to their terms, returned to their trenches, actually directed an artillery barrage on these men, uh, which doesn't seem very sporting to me, but it seemed apparently a little too sporting to the high brass in the American military. Um, I think, quite frankly, that they used it as an excuse to fire General Edwards and send him back. This was devastating to the morale of the Yankee division, and I know this uh, for many reasons. I've done a lot of research, but perhaps my favorite little piece of research from this comes from a book. Um, as I said, a great many books were written about the Yankee division. Um, and uh, one of them, the official history of it, is called New England in France. It was written by a, uh, a Yale man named Captain Emerson Gifford Taylor. Uh, he happened to be J. Lawrence Moffat's captain. And the copy that I found, and I can't remember where I found it. It was in a used bookstore somewhere. Um, you ever buy an old book in a used bookstore and you find notes written in the margins? Um, I love it because that's really like reading two books at once. And uh, when I started to read my copy of New England in France, which was published in 1920, I noticed there were a lot of notes written in red pencil. And by reading these notes, even though the book was not inscribed, I determined that the book had originally been owned by a soldier who'd served with the 101st Trench Mortar Battery, which was composed entirely of men from Maine. And this gentleman had very, very strong opinions, as uh, perhaps won't surprise you living in Maine. Um, he had also excellent recall of the details of all the battles. In fact, at one point, Gifford uh, describes a difficult position that the 101st Trench Mortar Battery found itself in at a place called Bois Brule. Uh, and the gentleman wrote in the margins, right flank wide open. Uh, he, was, he was filling in the missing details. Um, at one point, there is a letter um, reprinted in full in this book from the chief of staff of the 26th Division regarding the transfer of General Clarence Edwards back home. That's how they called. That's how they referred to firing him. They called it a transfer. This, the owner of this book, underlined every letter of that, uh, every word of that letter in red pencil, and next to it in the margins, he wrote a single word: bunk. 
And then um, there's also at one point late in the book, there's a letter from March 1919 from General Pershing praising the Yankee division. And the owner of this book wrote in the margins, did that hurt him? Um, he clearly had very bitter feelings about the way the Yankee division was treated, and these were shared by a great many of the men in the Yankee division. J. Lawrence Moffat was not among them, or at least not as far as he told me. He was a very, very stoic man. Just to give you an example of how stoic he was, um, I asked him once if he'd ever been gassed, and he said, oh yes, all the shells had gas in them practically. And I was kind of stunned for a minute, because if you know anything at all about the First World War, you know about poison gas and the terrible, terrible things it did to people. It could kill you any number of ways, um, slowly and painfully, or quickly and painfully. And I said, what was that like? And he said, oh, it wasn't too bad. I just lost my voice for a few days, and eventually it came back, which I've never heard before about mustard gas. Uh, but that's just the kind of person he was, and he didn't have any bitter feelings. Uh, about uh, the way the Yankee division was treated. And an interesting thing was that as soon as the war was over, all of a sudden, the military high brass discovered the Yankee division and decided that they'd been quite heroic during the war, which they had been, uh, and heaped praise upon them. They were selected from among all divisions in France to be reviewed by uh, President Wilson on Christmas Day, 1918, on his way to the Versailles Peace Conference. Um, Lawrence Moffat remembered that very well. He remembered in particular that President Wilson was four hours late and that um, all the men had had to stand at attention for four hours. They missed lunch uh, and on a cold Christmas day. And finally, they got to eat. And I said, did you get to talk to President Wilson? And he said, no, but a buddy of mine did. And I said, what happened? And he said, the president asked him, uh, how are conditions here? And his friend responded, lousy. Um, and apparently got in, got in trouble for that. And, and Mr. Moffat was very quick to say they were not lousy. Uh, the food was quite good. And, and that, that's just the kind of person he was. And so um, as I write in the book, and the Yankee division eventually returned home in April of 1919. They paraded through Boston. They were given parades all over New England. Um, I don't know about uh, celebrations for the 103rd here in Maine, uh, but I have heard since this book was published from a lot of people whose ancestors uh, served in the 103rd. And I'm hoping to get details of that. So if you pick up one of these cards on your way out there on the table back there, um, You'll find the website on the bottom, thelastofthedoughboys.com. And as I have more information about these things, I'll post it on there. I also have posted video clips of some of the veterans I interviewed, including J. Lawrence Moffat, talking about poison gas. Uh, so I encourage you to visit that website and take a look at those videos. Um, I just want to uh, say, first of all, about the Yankee division that I write in the book that without them, I wouldn't really have understood what World War I meant to Americans and what the experience was like. And I really do mean that. They were the first division to go across in full. They represented America. They were proud New Englanders. And um, they, really, they really exemplified the war for me. So I really did get very lucky in interviewing a Lawrence Moffat. I did interview one gentleman from Maine. And he wasn't a World War I veteran, but he was remarkable in another way, in that when I interviewed him on December 3rd, 2003, he was officially the oldest living man in the world. His name was Fred Hale. Uh, he was from New Sharon. Um, do we have a lot of Mainers here in the room? 
I don't know, I understand you're pretty protective about who is and who isn't a Mainer. Um, and I don't know if you'd consider Fred Hale a Mainer because while he was born in New Sharon, he didn't live there his entire life. He only lived there until he was 109. So you tell me whether or not he was a Mainer. Um, he was a remarkable man. Um, the reason I interviewed him was because uh, he was the world's oldest man. And as I write in the book, would you not interview the world's oldest man if given a chance? But I knew in advance he had not served in World War I. He had tried. He uh, was 27 years old when America entered the war. He went to his local recruiter and tried to enlist. The recruiter knew Fred, had known him his whole life. He knew that Fred had three young children. And he said, Fred, go home. We'll call you if we need you. Uh, Fred did not go home. Instead, he went and enlisted in the National Guard, and they failed to activate him. So he tried his best to get into the war, wasn't able to do it, but he was a really remarkable person uh, to speak with. As I've said, he was 113 years and two days old when I met him, and um, he had, been, had lived his entire life, except for the last four years, in New Sharon. Um, it was just one of the most remarkable people I've ever met or even heard of. He um, uh, was also a very stoic person, as you might expect. Uh, he got married at the age of 20. I asked him how long he and his wife had dated before they got married, and his response was, didn't really date. Uh, he, I, I want to read you a little something about Fred Hale, because uh, people often ask me, what was it like to speak to people this old? And they're not like the rest of us. My fears early on about uh, would I be able to talk to people this old, I'd never met anybody over 100 years old. And so I imagined that a 100-year-old person would be like a 90-year-old person, except that much older. And most of the 90-year-old people I knew were not in that great shape. Um, but people who live to be that old, uh, over 100, are different from the rest of us, really from birth. They're genetic super people. Um, they don't get sick. Uh, they often are impervious to things like Alzheimer's and dementia that will take down the rest of us. Uh, and uh, they're, just, they're just very different. And I want to read you a passage about Fred Hale that uh, really, I think, explains this difference very well. And I'm going to read it to you rather than just share these details with you because I've found that people tend to believe it more if I actually read it. Um, from 1921 to 1937, Fred Hale rode his bicycle to work a distance of five or six miles each way every day, year round. Didn't make any difference if it was raining or snowing or what, his son explained. It snowed a lot in Maine. He did not own a car until he was in his late 40s. He kept bees from the age of 12 until he was 107. When he was in his late 80s, his wife, Flora, went to live in a nursing home a mile and a half away from their house. Fred walked there to visit her three times a day for meals, then walked home after every meal. Often he had to wear snowshoes. He never missed a meal, even during an ice storm that crippled the state. At 95, now a widower, he flew to Japan to visit his grandson, who was in the Navy. On his way home, he stopped in Hawaii, where he tried boogie boarding. At 100, he went to Europe with his older son, Norman, to visit the sites where Norman had served during World War II. When he was 103, the area was hit by a blizzard. After a few days, someone thought to go check on Fred to make sure he was OK. They found him shoveling snow off his roof. 
He continued to live alone and to drive until he was 107. Fred Jr. and Norman, concerned about their father, tried to force him to, uh, to quit driving. Quote, we went down to see the state farm agent, Fred Jr. told me, and said, we don't want my father driving when his insurance is due, cancel. They looked at us and said, sorry, non-cancelable, guaranteed renewable as long as he wants it. I don't think State Farm is issuing those anymore. At 107, he went to live in the same nursing home where his wife had spent her last days 20 years earlier. The average resident lived 90 days after moving in. At 109, he moved to New York. At 108, he broke his hip and had surgery on it. The next year, he broke the other one and had surgery on it. At 109, he had surgery to remove cataracts from one of his eyes. At 110, he had them removed from the other one. Somewhere in there, he also broke two ribs, had his tonsils removed, and had an operation on his prostate. He always recovered very quickly. That was Fred Hale. Uh, and he was as stoic as just about anybody else I ever interviewed. But perhaps the most remarkable thing about my meeting Fred Hale, well, there were really two things. Uh, the first was that there was this exercise I always did in my head, a weird mathematical exercise when I met somebody. I took their age, and then I took that number of years and put it back before they were born and calculated where, where the mirror image of that year would be in American history. And when I met Fred Hale in 2003, he was 113 years old, and he'd been born in 1890. If you subtract 113 from 1890, you get 1777, the year of the Battle of Saratoga, which means that Fred Hale's life covered more than half the life of the Republic. I don't even know what to do with that fact, and I've known it for many, many years. The other thing is that, um, Perhaps the most remarkable part of the conversation I had with him was at one point we started talking about New Year's Day 1900. And this was in, again, December of 2003. And he had very clear memories of it. He'd been nine years old. And I said, what was that like? And he said, I don't really think there was anything. I th the minister may have said something about it in church that morning. And that really struck me. That's what it was like for these people. Lawrence Moffat told me when I asked him, what is it like to be 106 years old? He said, it's not like anything. I, I don't, it, be, being 106 to me is the same as being your age is to you. And I don't know if that's a New England thing or if it's a centenarian thing or whatever, but that's what enabled these very old men and women, I interviewed some women, I think to share these very, very old memories of a very traumatic time with me. And I'm quite grateful that they did. They were the last, they're all gone now. Uh, but you can read all about them and meet them in my book, and I think uh, you won't forget them. So thank you very much for coming. <laughs> Larissa, do we have time for some questions? We have time for a few questions. Okay, so make them good. <laughs> yes, ma'am. You know, I never wrote an article. Um, I think I, <laughs> I decided the article would become a book. This is true. Uh, in some ways, I'm kind of six years old. And a few months into this, when I couldn't find any uh, living American World War I veterans, I got very frustrated. And I remember one day I slammed my fist down on the desk and said, 
I'm going to find all these people. And I think that's the point at which this became a book. But really, uh, when I found the French list, uh, because I, I, you know, I, I knew that even though most of these people were dead, there might be a good dozen or two dozen people on this, and I wouldn't be able to perform triage on them and just select two or three for an article. Um, I really didn't think this was going to take over 10 years of my life. Um, my agent really wanted me to write that book on genealogy. Uh, genealogy is the second most popular hobby in America. Nobody agrees on what the most popular hobby is, but everybody agrees genealogy is number two. So I would say it was uh, certainly by the end of 2003, I knew that it was going to be more than an article. And I never did write an article about it. Uh, so I did write other articles in the interim, but I didn't write one about that. So. Yes, sir. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed your book. Thank you. You mentioned uh, audiovisual um, records during an interview. Mm -hmm. What do you intend to do with those? You mean uh, ultimately? Yes. Well, uh, I'm thinking, you know, bury them somewhere and leave clues, you know, scavenger hunt kind of thing. No, I, um, you know, eventually they'll be left to the National Archives or the Library of Congress, probably something like that. Um, but you know, I intend to make them available to the public in bits and pieces before that. Um, everybody was uh, wonderful. They said, "Of course, you can do with these whatever you want." Um, so you know, I'm not I'm not sure yet at this point. Honestly, I don't know who wants them or who would want them. Um, I hope somebody will. Uh, I don't want to be presumptuous and say, "Well, of course, the National Archives is going to take them." But I, 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 you know, I hope somebody will want them, and I certainly, uh, you know, don't want them to to grow moldy in a storage unit somewhere. So, but they are on digital video, which is now kind of obsolete. You can't buy a mini DV camcorder anymore, but it's an extremely stable medium. So, I've already also, uh, you know, I have the video on hard drives too and stuff like that. So it's 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 around. So, yes, sir. What, what does World War I mean to Americans compared to other wars in America? Well, you know, that's a difficult question because Americans have, to a great extent, forgotten World War I, which is mystifying to me. Um, I think a lot of Americans don't think America did very much in the war, which nothing could be further from the truth. The war would have come out very differently if America had not entered. Um, I think World War I means a great deal to America. I think it turned America into the country that we live in today. Um, almost everything in this country can be traced back to World War I in some way or another, but Americans have forgotten it. Um, I think in part that's due to a misunderstanding of history, in part it's due to the fact that the war was a terribly traumatic experience to Americans. We were in it for just 19 months, and we lost 117,000 men. Um, and um, uh, America retreated into itself after that war. Uh, we became a, a very isolationist country in a way we were determined uh, not to get involved in anything like that again, and indeed we didn't until we were attacked in 1941. Um, so I'm hoping that with the centennial coming up that Americans will rediscover World War I and the important role uh, it played in our history. It really did uh, make us who we are, whether we remember it or not. And the, one of the interesting things is you don't have to go very far to find a place where World War I is remembered. Uh, all you have to do is drive up to Canada. World War I is tremendously important to Canadians. If you go over to Britain or France and you say the war, they think World War I, not World War II. Um, only we seem to have forgotten 
what it meant to the world and really to us. It really changed us forever as a country in good ways and bad and turned us into the place that we recognize today. So I, I'm hoping that uh, this book and maybe other books that will come out uh, for the centennial will start to change Americans' understanding of that war. So, uh, oh, ma'am, in the back, yeah. I did. I interviewed three women. Mm -hmm. Two of them um, served in the Navy. Uh, people don't remember this today, but World War I was the first time any women served in uniform in any branch of the armed forces, and that branch was the Navy. Um, this was due to a clerical error in the Naval Act of 1916, a very, very long document that detailed uh, uh, intricately all the requirements for service in the Navy, but somebody forgot to mention that you had to be male. And um, in early 1917, somebody discovered this and pointed this out to Secretary of the Navy Josephus Daniels. To his credit, he said, let it stand. And ultimately, 11,000 women enlisted in the Navy in World War I. They were given the rank of yeoman, parentheses, F. Uh, but they were, they were commonly referred to as yeomanettes, um, which sounds funny to us today. Um, and they did mostly clerical work. They were all discharged. Um, immediately after the war, whether they wanted out or not, but they f founded some of the very first VFW and American Legion posts. Um, they lobbied for more recognition, and they really paved the way for uh, service of women in World War II and beyond. And the third woman I interviewed worked for the War Department during the war. She was a civilian. So, yeah. Sir? Well, that is a difficult question because that hinges on the question, who is a veteran? Uh, I interviewed uh, some three dozen men and women. A few of them, uh, well, I'll just tell you one story very quickly. One gentleman I interviewed enlisted, and he was on the train in Binghamton, New York, waiting to ship off for boot camp when uh, somebody came on and said, uh, you can all go home. The armistice was signed this morning. So is he a World War I veteran? Um, so I interviewed a total of three dozen men and women, uh, but I wouldn't call every last one of them a World War I veteran. So, sir? Did uh, World War I have any, uh, have any connection with Roaring Twenties and then Prohibition? Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, those are two different things. Um, World War I, I think, was the, the last nail in the coffin of alcohol. That was really um, what, uh, what teetotalers needed to finally get enough uh, states to approve prohibition. Um, the direct connection between the two is very complex, and I won't get into it now. The Roaring Twenties, I would say, certainly were an outgrowth of the trauma of World War I and people's desire to just forget. Um, We've moved past that now. We're not, we're not a nation who forgets traumatic things anymore, and I think that's very much to our credit. But, you know, World War I was different than World War II, say. It didn't start because we were attacked. Um, it was much more complicated than that, and a lot of people after that war wondered what those 117,000 men had died for, especially since it became obvious that the world had not been made safe for democracy by this war. And I think that uh, the, the, the great spree that we now remember as the Roaring Twenties was in, in part a reaction to that trauma. So, yes, sir. At the time, it was known as, in, in Britain, they called it the Great War. Here, we tended to call it the World War. So, yeah. Yes? Uh, in the 
Um, accidentally, well, not really accidentally. I, I made a decision early on to only do Americans, um, in part because my French and German are okay, but I didn't trust them enough to interview um, French and German veterans. And also, again, I was on a shoestring budget. I couldn't very well travel over to France and Germany. But also, I, I thought it would just give me a better focus for this. But I did learn in 2004 of the existence of a gentleman in Spokane who had served in the Canadian Expeditionary Force. And I was going to Spokane to interview somebody else, so I decided I'd interview him too. His name was John Henry Foster Babcock. And a really remarkable man. He was 104 at the time, literally looked about 70 years old. That's another thing about people that old. They just age much better than the rest of us. And I spoke to him for a few hours, had a wonderful interview, uh, and left. And I didn't think I was going to do anything with it. Um, at the time, there were a dozen Canadian veterans of World War I still living. He ended up being the last living Canadian veteran of World War I as it happened. He died in 2010. And there is a section in the book on him and Canada in World War I. It's a very, uh, it's a very interesting story and very different from the American story of World War I. So, yes, sir. Why the title suggests that these were all Army veterans? Did you interview anybody from the Navy? I did. There's a whole chapter on the Navy in World War I, and I interviewed a couple of Marines, including the last living veteran of the Battle of Belo Wood, which is tremendously important to the Marine Corps. Uh, so yes, um, the Navy, as I write in the book, had their war stolen out from under them. When we first got in, it was largely because of unrestricted submarine warfare, and the assumption was that it would be primarily a naval war. And in fact, when Lawrence Moffat enlisted in the Army National Guard, uh, his mother was relieved that he'd chosen the Army over the Navy, but it didn't work out that way. It was much more of an Army war. A very interesting little fact about the Navy, not a single American troop transport was sunk in the course of the war, not a single one. So they really don't get the credit that they deserve. Well, it wasn't American. There were troop transports that were sunk with, Amer with American soldiers on it, but they were not American, no. Uh, I'm not. I'm not familiar with that, but uh, okay, great. <laughs> okay, sure. Uh, yes, sir, in the back there. The Great War in modern memory focuses on the British. That's right. At the same time you write your book, there was a lot of new British literature by Tommy saying, "Now wait a minute. My experience was not the reinterpreted literary experience." Do you have any sense? Yeah, I think there was much less written about it. That's another thing about the trauma of, of Americans in that war is that um, at some point in the 1920s, Americans just stopped writing about it. And so histories of that war that kept coming to this America in the English language, language were British histories. And so if you ask most Americans, what do you know about World War I, they'll tell you about the Somme and people writing poetry in the trenches. Well, that wasn't the American experience. That's the British experience. And that's one of the reasons why Americans tend to under, uh, underestimate their own role in the war, because the British were very upset that America didn't enter the war in 1914. And so in hi British histories of that war, even to this day, they tend to really downplay America's role in that war and make it seem like America didn't do very much in the war. And, and to this day also, we're as guilty as anybody else, because to this day also, uh, World War I books that tend to sell very well in this country are British histories of that war. So um, again, hopefully with the centennial of the war, Americans will discover more about their role in it. Um, one more, shall we say? Uh, anybody? 
Oh, uh, uh, you, you two can duke it out. <laughs> Mm hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm smiling because I, I have also seen Warhorse in Downton Abbey, and in Downton Abbey in particular, their depiction of the trenches is so funny. The trenches are so clean and neat, and I mean, they look like places you'd really like to hang out, and it, it, you know, if you weren't getting shot at. But in, in real life, trenches were filthy, muddy places. There was often water up to your knees. They were full of rats and lice. They were terrible, terrible places to be. You did not want to be in a trench. Uh, and uh, the, best, the best evidence of that is the fact that we've never fought a trench war since then. So um, uh, I'd like to see a realistic movie about World War I, but I don't know if very many people could handle it visually. So, uh, sir, if you, if you got one real quick. Oh, well, there, you two should uh, get together afterwards. <laughs> well, Thank you, everybody. Yes.